0: Your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Robin. Welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Thursday night, February 1st, 2024, as we bring you a new episode. There's not much White Sox news on the field, but we have updates about the White Sox new stadium plans. As Related Midwest, the real estate developer is pushing hard for a new stadium in the South Loop as they have met with Illinois state leaders recently. We at Sox Machine have heard from the 11th Ward office in Bridgeport of Nicole Lee and what their strategy is in keeping the White Sox at their current location at 35th and Shields. We'll share those details plus talk about why there are big free agents still available as spring training is just a couple weeks away and if old friends Tim Anderson and Yasmani Grandal will find new homes by then. But first, on Thursday night, the Athletics' Ken Rosenthal and ESPN's Jeff Passan did most of the heavy lifting, reporting that the Baltimore Orioles, who just agreed to a new sale to new owners on Wednesday, have acquired Milwaukee Brewers ace pitcher Corbin Burns. How does this trade shake out and the impacts on White Sox GM's Chris Getz's attempt to move Dylan Cease? Well, joining me to discuss is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Man, the Baltimore Orioles have been busy the last
2: couple of days.
1: Nice to see one blockbuster trade prior to spring training starting.
2: Yeah, and coming on the heels of an ownership change, like kind of a sale or a partial sale that basically moves John Angelos out of the picture. And yeah, he, he sounded miserable running the team yeah. as, as much fun as he should have in Baltimore with the ballpark that they have striking the new lease that goes up to 30 years and having this, uh, division winning talent with paired with the, uh, still the number one farm system by some rankings, uh, a payroll that's still under 100 million, Like that should be the ideal situation for any owner saying like, yeah, we did it right. We are currently... Uh, in a position to strike and be good for a long time and he just sounded so miserable whining about TV deals and attendance and how he wasn't going to be able to maintain any of the players or you know, hold on to them because of you know the contract so enjoy this run while it lasts because the uh, the game's economics are so unfair and then he goes and sells to two hedge fund billionaires for 1.7 plus million and it sounds like they're excited to run the team and and injecting a lot of positive energy. And then sure enough, yes, the day after that, uh, they do strike for the starter they've needed. Uh, I think White Sox fans were hoping it'd be Dylan Cease. But uh, Corbin Burns is like, you know, he's Dylan Cease. So he's probably a little bit better than Dylan Cease if you're looking for like a rock of rotation. Uh, the difference is one year of team control versus two, but depends on what kind of starter you want and the discounted price the Orioles paid uh, relative to what the White Sox seem to be asking for for cease. Like it's a deal that makes sense for them.
1: The Baltimore Orioles have World Series aspirations in 2024. And as we saw last year, they're really good. Like (laughs) Mm -hmm. they're really good. So I don't think it's crazy to say they have world series aspirations for this season. If you were in their shoes, Jim, let's take our white Sox caps off for a moment. Who would you rather have if you have, if you are a team with world series aspirations like Baltimore, Corbin Burns or Dylan sees,
2: I think I would rather have burns, uh, just because of the price they paid. Like I think there's a lot of value to cease having two years of team control, but he also, he's less efficient, uh, than Burns when it comes to starting, you know, lasting in a start, like Burns throws about like 20 more innings more a year, roughly, uh, than cease does, uh, walks fewer batters, strikes out about the same. So you kind of know that the guy you're getting is probably going to be able to go six innings instead of five, uh, seven innings, or at least six and two-thirds instead of six, which counts. Like, when you have a bullpen like Baltimore does, uh, and they saw that with uh, Bautista's late-season injury, you don't want to wear it down by having so many starters who can only throw 150 innings. Like, you want to have one guy who stands a chance of throwing 200 or at least rounding up to 200, and Burns gives them that. So I think Cease, like, offers a little bit more upside for maybe dominance with like you know really you know filthy strikeout totals. Well, Burns did that you know a couple years ago, so maybe Burns can rediscover that too the way that you know Cease's strikeout total dropped off a little bit. They're close, I think, but yeah, I think with the young pitchers they have and with the you know pitchers still to call up, like I still think they need somebody who could deliver innings and be like a guy you don't mind having throw 110 plus pitches because that 110 pitches is probably going to get you a six plus to seven innings versus like when Cease throws 110, like maybe he finishes six in a typical start, especially like in a division where they might fall off a lot of pitches and really might extend it at bats. So yeah, it makes sense. I think for the, uh, brewers to not worry so much about next year, if really the only prospects they sent Joey Ortiz and DL hall, plus a draft pick, the white Sox didn't have, uh, yeah, that's something the White Sox couldn't offer. was a draft pick if the draft capital really appealed to the Brewers, uh, you know, and, and really like, or sorry, really appealed to the, uh, uh, or, or the you know, White Sox really couldn't talk about that too much. Like that, I think is really something that, um, you know, makes sense. So if, I think when it comes to uh, what's left now, it's like now that Burns is, all, I guess is one thing, now that Burns is out of the markets, like I don't know if Cease has really any, Peers, But I think between the two of them, if you're only giving up Joey Ortiz, who the Orioles couldn't use anyway, and DL Hall, who Burns replaces effectively, uh, then yeah, that's, that's a hard trade for the Orioles to pass up.
1: Yeah. I, I really like this deal for Baltimore. Now they have Burns to oppose Garrett Cole in those critical division matchups in the 2024 season for Milwaukee. As Jim mentioned, Even though Joey Ortiz plays shortstop, the early indications out of Milwaukee is that Ortiz is going to get some playing time at third base in the major leagues this year. DL Hall, who is out of the Baltimore's bullpen the last couple of years, moves into the starting rotation for the Milwaukee Brewers, and we'll see what the Brewers do with the 35th pick in the draft, which I I love that the draft pick is involved because if, if you have been listening to this podcast for years, I have been campaigning for Major League Baseball to allow trading of draft picks. Like if teams could freely trade draft picks, mm-hmm. then maybe Chris gets, gets a deal that he would like for Dylan sees in which teams would be more willing to trade first round picks because even though they have those picks and they're hoping to count on that money at this stage, we don't know what that bonus slot value is. We don't know what your bonus money is going to be but you know, your prospects, you've been spending a lot of time developing them. Maybe teams would be more freely giving up first round picks than top prospects. And where the white Sox currently are reloading, rebuilding, whatever, maybe they'd rather have those first round picks than a 21 year old prospect at high a.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, one thing that jumped out to me initially, I, I was thinking that the prospect was, or the draft pick was going the other way. And then I, I corrected course, but The White Sox, I think that draft pick would hold extra appeal this year. Now I'm thinking it through a little bit with the White Sox missing out or or getting on the wrong end of the lottery and not being able to pick Mm -hmm. higher than 10th next year. Like that's a case where having the 34th overall pick could hold extra appeal. Now that the lottery, you know, teams can't really stack lottery picks year after year the way they used to having that extra first round pick, making up some of the money that they lose by not having a top five pick versus a top 10 or 15 pick. Like that's a case where you could really shape or mold some, some trade packages uh, in ways that they couldn't before. So that's something I wonder if the White Sox, when they were talking with the Orioles, I wonder if they talked about getting that draft pick or getting some extra capital, or if they just really wanted prospects and, and only, you know, prospects in their current form.
1: Because with the the draft capital, even though it's for this upcoming July draft, and the White Sox already have the fifth overall pick, that extra bonus slot value—if they really like someone—and mm-hmm. it sounds like they're going to go third overall because that team could offer more money—well, the White Sox would have more money in their draft pool with that pick, yeah. so they could really get who they wanted in this upcoming 2024 MLB draft. But alas, the Milwaukee Brewers get this pick, so. I keep asking this question, like, what is Milwaukee's game plan? But this could end up being a savvy move. If Joey Ortiz proves to be a league average hitter, we know defensively all the reports out of Norfolk is that he's going to be a solid defender at shortstop. If he could stick at third base and be a league average offensive player. That's an everyday player. The, the Milwaukee Brewers have for years deal hall. They got years of control and now they gain an extra first round pick for one year. Of Corbin Burns. So Milwaukee Brewers could come out. They could be happy about mm-hmm. this exchange for one year with Burns because the Brewers had zero interest in extending Corbin Burns after the season. But you mentioned that now there's no other peers for Dylan Cease in the trade market. How does this trade impact Chris gets his opportunity in moving Dylan Cease prior to spring training?
2: That's a, yeah, I think that's a good question. It was a question I opened, or not opened with, but I included in my February is here, what are the White Sox going to do, what are they doing, et cetera, post. I had on Thursday morning just talking about like uh, every time a trade partner pops up, the Mariners were the most recent one. Uh, Within 24 hours, they trade for Jorge Polanco. They send a top 100 outfielder, Minnesota's way and like, well, that's a guy who might've been interesting for the White Sox to fill out a, uh, potential trade proposal. Uh, and now, you know, the Mariners might, uh, you know, not really have as much to offer as they did. So that probably doesn't work. So I'm inclined to think like that, you know, as these partners whittle down and as Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery are still in the market, just costing only cash, And maybe their prices are getting lower, although with Scott Boris clients in the case of Snell, like you never know, like he tends to pull out the deal when you least expect it. I I think the chances are more and more likely that he probably does start the season, Cease does, with the White Sox.
1: Yeah, that Seattle reported deal, I just figured that it was Seattle kicking the tires. Like, you know what, let's have some fun here. We already have a great starting rotation, right? Yeah. Let's see what it would take to get Dylan Cease and make a super starting rotation because Seattle right now is what? The third team in the American League West behind Houston and Texas. Like you still like Houston and Texas more than Seattle. So Seattle, even though they have a very good team, they have a very tough fight on their hands coming up to the season. So it's not crazy that one strategy is let's make a super starting rotation. But there's also a part of me that just wonders, Jim, is Jerry Depoto? board and was he just antsy that he hasn't made a trade in a while? Mm-hmm. That's why he called Chris Getz and hey, I'm kind of interested yeah. in Dylan Cease, yeah. But then you had the like, like He said 24 hours later he gets Jorge Polanco from the Minnesota Twins, which you know, good for Seattle. We know how dangerous Polanco could be, but I really like that return for Minnesota as far as being able to get some depth. They shed a little cash on their payroll. The question in Minneapolis, though, is are Twins owners going to spend that $6.5 that they saved, or are they just going to put it in whatever fund, and maybe they can add players to the deadline if they're in position to win the division, or they want to enhance their odds of winning another playoff series in the postseason if they make it that far? We'll see. Uh, but that's all I took from the Seattle Mm -hmm. curiosity and Dylan Cease is that I didn't really think it was a serious trade partner, just that. Yeah. Jerry DePoto was bored and he's kicking the tires to see what's out there.
2: Yeah. I mean, look at the rest of the market too. Like maybe the Yankees, maybe like the teams we've been talking about as like the secondary contenders after the Dodgers who found pitching, uh, you know, now after the Orioles found pitching, I uh, just kind of go down the list a little bit like the Cardinals still need something, but they're not a great match necessarily. Braves could maybe use somebody besides Chris sale, but also they're not a great match. The rays have a lot of interest, but typically they don't make that kind of deal. <laughs> they tend to send guys the other way uh, when they're about to reach free agency or within a couple of years. So yeah, that, that's why I'm thinking it's more and more likely that cease, you know, starts the season with the white Sox and then is the best pitcher on the market. Probably, uh, when the trade deadline comes around, unless like Jesus Lazardo becomes more available, depending right. on which way the Marlins go with their new administration, he's really the only peer right now. Uh, I do think looking at this Burns return, um, it's an okay return for Milwaukee and the Brewers had ever reason to hold on to Burns. Like there's no reason to trade him earlier because they've been winning divisions. They've been you know, having real postseason. uh, aspirations and deep postseason run aspirations so like there's no reason to trade him beforehand this is more a case of like well you know we're kind of in between now so which way do we go and they decide trade burns now but the return isn't really, that impressive. Like Ortiz might not be a major league starter, or at least a major league regular. Uh, Hall is kind of a tweener. Like you posts huge strikeout numbers, but doesn't seem to necessarily have like the efficiency to start. Like you know, really pile up the innings the way you want a starter to do. So, it'll be worth keeping an eye on him to see if the Brewers can unlock something the Orioles weren't quite able to do to get five innings with regularity out of him. But like, if he clicks, like he could be a monster. So it does make some sense, but you can see a case too, where like the Orioles don't get like a real fixture out of this deal for their best starter. And it just kind of a trade to make, yeah, trade they kind of had to make, but, uh, you know, if they wanted to maximize his return, they should have done it either a half season earlier or a year earlier. There's no reason for them to do that, just only talking about the return. In this case, for the White Sox, it's instructive because the White Sox could deal cease now. They could deal him at the deadline. They could have dealt him at the last deadline. Like they've had this sliding scale of like, when is the best time to trade him? And so I think you're seeing now what the return might be like if the White Sox let the trade deadline pass too, and you get all the way to one year remaining. And it's like, well, you know, Ortiz and. Hall aren't bad and they're excited, you know, at least with the with Hall, he's got some excitement to him. But there's also like a high bust um factor for both, you know, if you're hoping for a regular, that I think might be a little bit uncomfortable for like having Cease as long as the White Sox had in a position to deal them. So if it turns out that the White Sox don't deal Cease uh this winter or spring and he starts the season with them, then I think it really becomes incumbent on Chris Getz to really start priming the trade, de- trade deadline for him, even if like late June, you're talking like just, you know, maybe even earlier when it comes to uh, what teams could really use a pitcher, like be ready to deal them because like that, it really is important to try to get that extra half season, the extra postseason for a cease to matter because otherwise the price will go down quite a bit
1: we're all in a holding pattern when it comes to Dylan cease and what this off season meant for the Chicago white Sox, but in a future podcast episode, right around when spring training starts, we'll recap the white Sox off season. And so essentially we're giving the white Sox front office a couple more weeks to do something. And again, read Jim's post on soxmachine.com As we enter February, we'll talk more about the players that are available, uh, even old friends as well. But The next topic, and this is by far the biggest topic when it concerns the Chicago White Sox because they're not doing much on the field or in transaction news, the latest stadium update. So since we last spoke last week about the White Sox flirting with the idea of moving to the South Loop, there have been a few new reporting developments from the Chicago Sun-Times. They reported that Related Midwest, who is the real estate developer, spoke with Illinois House Speaker Chris Welch, and Illinois Senate President Don Harmon. Related Midwest is not asking for state money, according to the Sun-Times, but rather they want the Illinois Sports Facilities Authority, commonly known as the ISFA, to be granted authority to rearrange existing bonds that are currently for guarantee rate field, extending those bonds over to the South Loop location which Related Midwest already has $500 million in tip funds allocated to develop the land. So Related Midwest, rather very quickly, has gotten positive feedback from Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson, also the Chicago Federation of Labor President, Bob Reeder, and the 3rd Ward Alderman Pat Dowell, and even 11th Ward Alderman Nicole Lee was on record, reported to be impressed with the proposed plans. Now we could report at Sox Machine on Thursday night after speaking with Nicole Lee's team that the plan is for the 11th Ward is to not go down without a fight. Nicole Lee's office will be trying to keep the Chicago White Sox at 35th and Shields in the upcoming weeks, maybe even months. Lee's office will make the case that with the empty parking lots owned by the state that the same kind of entertainment district that Related Midwest is pitching to state politicians can be built in bridgeport but lee's office is making it clear they will not hand a blank check to jerry Rhinestor for such a project they would need white Sox cooperation and investment into such a plan jim because again there's nothing going on for the white Sox on the field this new stadium talk really has taken center stage with for all white Sox talks and in case if you haven't heard the segment podcast listeners i recommend going on youtube to 670 The score their YouTube page and watch the debate between Matt Spiegel and our very good friend, Lawrence Holmes. While it's a bit exciting to think that the White Sox could have a new stadium with an entertainment district that we see elsewhere, elsewhere around Major League Baseball like Cincinnati has and raved about that last year when we had our road trip at Cincinnati. Man, it'd be great if the White Sox had something like this outside the stadium. This project seems to be moving rather quickly that key state politicians outside of the governor of Illinois are already meeting Jim with the real estate developer. And to me related Midwest seems to be the culprit of wanting to move this very quickly and getting a new stadium deal on a parcel of land that they currently own in the South loop. Like it's not so much the white Sox; mm-hmm. It's this real estate developer that's trying to make this happen, which Maybe that's what Jerry Reinsdorf wanted all along. Hey, somebody do this for me.
2: Yeah. I mean, like (laughs) that's one of the benefits of having the deal that you have uh, at guaranteed rate field. Uh, The public funding is like you don't really have to do anything. They get all the parking lot money. uh, They don't pay uh, or they don't pay fees on tickets uh, below a certain amount. So it's just like it's been very much a set it and forget it kind of deal. Obviously, with the way with interest rates rising and other, uh, you know, pension shortages and such, not only in Illinois, but in other States, like it's been less popular and it's more known that it's not a great idea for states and cities to give money away to ballparks. So yeah, I imagine this time around now that, uh, the public is a little bit wiser to all the ways, uh, ballpark funding doesn't pay off in the long run for a city that yeah let somebody else do the driving here and you maybe still get the benefits of that bond extension which is basically like you know money that could be going elsewhere but instead goes to the white Sox or benefits the white Sox. but you know he doesn't have to do anything new for that that's just an extension you know related midwest is already trying to move the train tracks and get like the public transportation in line to be able to have land available for something as big so i mean like it is a case of like, yeah, uh, He, whenever somebody says, are you going to sell the team? He says, make me an offer. And it might be the same thing playing out ballpark for him. Like, are you going to move? Yeah, you going to move to Nashville? Are you going to move to outside the city? Are you going to move? Like, yeah, just somebody make me an offer. Tell me what's good. And this case, like, it's probably very good. Uh, my reaction to uh, the alderman's office uh, talking about, like, how they don't want Jerry Reinsdorf or, uh, having a blank check for to develop a neighborhood, like... I don't blame them just because like uh, one thing um, when you look at uh, these stories about the South Loop development and recapping all of the ways guaranteed right field was a mistake. It's like, that's one thing I don't want to see with the South Loop is like Jerry Reinsdorf having say on architecture or where the trends are going for ballpark development. And it's, uh, yeah, because basically he made every wrong call. And so I don't blame the alderman's office for saying, like, if we're going to expand your influence on this neighborhood, put even bigger stamp on this area beyond parking lots and turning into buildings like we want to make sure these buildings aren't as big a mistake as the ballpark was in terms of all the all the wrong choices that went into it. So, yeah, even like the ballpark in um, Glendale, Camelback Ranch, like that's not that didn't turn out to be a great deal in terms of like, nope a destination or a design of the stadium with like how little shade it offers. It's far away from every other thing. Glendale's kind of, uh, you know, they, they, they whiffed on hockey and now they're playing in a college rink. So like Glendale's kind of a mess. Like Reinsdorf got a free stadium out of it, but he made wrong choices there too, or at least like he didn't consider the choices important enough to make to really think about it. So I don't blame the Alderman's office for saying like, we want to have input on how to develop this neighborhood because the first chance at redeveloping what was, you know, Parking lots into New Comiskey Park was, uh, they did a pretty bad job of it. So if he gets another crack at it, he needs help.
1: It just, it, to me, as a Bridgeport resident, like reading and hearing from parties, it seems like it's going to be a battle between this real estate development company and the 11th Ward. Because clearly, Bridgeport doesn't want to lose the White Sox. And you speak to other people who live in Bridgeport and it's like sad puppy syndrome. Like this is not welcoming news for everyone outside in Chicago and the Chicago suburbs. And we've seen this on the Sox machine comments as well, that there's a little bit of excitement about this. Like, okay, yeah, this might be easier for me in a commute and saw the mm-hmm. released renderings that probably should have not been released. From, re- from related Midwest, uh, this is exciting. But everybody keeps saying that Guarantee Rate Field is not in a neighborhood. I mean, Commissioner Rob Manfred made that comment, right, that the, the neighborhood goes dark a- after games. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Like, I get it. You go to Guarantee Rate Field, if you're the commissioner of Major League Baseball, it's a lot easier to turn right out of the Guarantee Rate Field parking lot to hop on the highway mm-hmm. than it is to go turning left down 35th over in the Halstead district. Cause that takes like two minutes. Like, oh, we got to get out of the South side of Chicago. It's scary down mm-hmm. here. Like, yeah, I I could totally see someone like Rob Manfred making that comment, but I assure you Bridgeport he's not a is Buffalo
2: wings and rings guy. He's,
1: he's not a Buffalo wings and rings guy. Must not like Chinese food. There's some great restaurants there. There's great restaurants in Morgan. Like, but then again, it's a very Chicago thing. Like, please do not come to my neighborhood. I love these places and they are not that busy right now. And I can go to them at any time, Jim. <laughs> I can get a drink. I can get no. a meal. Don't <laughs> have to wait. Cause I've been in other neighborhoods where things blow up and then it's a headache and you never go to those old places.
2: You're not duck way. into the duck inn. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, the duck in got a, is a semifinalist for a James beard award, by the way, but it is a bit concerning that if this does become reality, like, what on the other side of the equation, like, what do you do with the current stadium? Like, I, I've heard and read that people have been pitching that maybe the Chicago Fire and the Chicago Red Stars, the soccer teams, could move in, which is fine. But that stadium would need funds to renovate seating to be more proper for a soccer stadium. And I looked this up, the city of Portland turned their old triple a baseball stadium into what is now the home of the uh, major league soccer, Portland Timbers and the uh, national women's soccer league, the Portland thorns, the city spent 38 and a half million in 2000, 10 years later spent an additional 31 million. And then there was an additional 85 million in private funding to complete the project. So they could have a 25,000 seat capacity soccer stadium. And what was an old triple a baseball stadium, Portland, along with public and private funding, spent a hundred and fifty four million dollars to renovate their current stadium. So even if the White Sox move to the South Loop, somebody's gonna need to come up with money to renovate the stadium if you do turn it into a soccer stadium. You still may want to develop that land. Like Yeah, I understand the 11th Ward now needing to come up with a plan because if the White Sox do move, you have all these parking lots that are just empty. Now you got an empty baseball stadium. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do with all this land? Like It is valuable land, and the neighborhood is growing with more population, especially coming further south from Chinatown, as now it's 40% of the neighborhood in Bridgeport uh, is Asian as far as the demographics go. So regardless, like I mentioned, like the 11th Ward needs a plan because Related Midwest, man. And you go to their website, and they have already pulled off pretty impressive projects around the city of Chicago, especially in the West Loop. They got big plans. And they seem to be the ones driving this the most, where last week I thought it was maybe the White Sox pushing this. But yeah, it really seems like this third-party gym is pushing for the White Sox to move to the South Loop. And it's going to turn into a pretty interesting conversation. And I wonder what Governor JB Pritzker, which side that he lands on. Because this parcel of land, not that long ago, was supposed to build this new Illinois tech hub that JB Pritzker was at an announcement with then current, then Mayor Lori Lightfoot, with plans of that opening on this parcel of land in 2026. So now. Sounds like he's not going to get that. And now he has to hear this pitch from the same real estate company that, oh, uh, instead of that governor Pritzker, we want to build a new stadium for the White Sox. I wonder how he's going to take yeah, that news. I
2: mean, uh, well, like you mentioned that the you know the real estate firm it seems to be one that's driving it, and it seems like that might be why it's going so smoothly so far. <laughs> like it's, I want the White Sox negotiating. Yeah, just uh, it's it's been remarkable. Like I'm not sure if it's gaining momentum. But it's not losing momentum. No, like it's not. You're there. There's no. Um, it's definitely no- gaining
1: momentum because of the positive vibes that are surrounding this. It is rare, yeah. Jim, for a Chicago project to get the mayor, the local alderman, and the chief, the president of the most powerful union labor in, in Illinois, to say this is a great idea. Yeah, like that is super rare.
2: Yeah, and it doesn't seem like the White Sox work that well with outside parties like they're so you know insular and such that we're like getting all the cooperation this early uh would be rather startling so yeah it does make sense that if the real estate firm is the one driving it like that explains why this has been uh you know so well rolled out this introductory phase to where you know people have warmed up to it uh you know there's still the question the reason i don't want to get ahead of myself and say it's gaining momentum is because there's still a big unanswered question about like, right, where is all the money coming from? And I think that's one that's too important to like treat it as like, yeah, we'll get to it when we get to it. Because uh, cities and states have made that mistake over and over again. So uh, I guess you know, being on the side of uh, uh, you know, having a platform, yeah, you, know, you want to stop short of cheerleading it without knowing exactly where the money is coming from and say like, you know, my stance is more. This is kind of interesting, just how. Uh, every week or so there's a new update where there isn't that snag yet which i think you know i keep expecting the next update will be oh they've run into they're at loggerheads with the governor yeah. or they don't have the buy-in from and I'm like no oh, it's all good so far so hats off to them for at least the uh, you know nailing the early news cycles really well
3: it's
1: a lot better than what's going on in vegas yeah
2: i mean that's <laughs> and that's the counterpoint that hey, i mentioned this when when talking about like the Uh, the Orioles sale too is just like everybody who talks about the White Sox moving to Nashville, wherever it's like the A's are showing how hard it is and why major league baseball has avoided it for so long, moving the A's or moving the Rays, like rather finding a stadium in their market, because it's a real pain in the butt to try to get out of a current lease and go to a, a, a market that does not have a ballpark yet. Like, you can't make an analog or uh, you can't make an analogy to the 1980s because the Suncoast Dome was just sitting there ready for baseball. That's why so many teams were able to use it successfully as leverage because like any year, any team could have gone there, give them like four months notice, they'll get the field there and they'll get the marketing ready. They had everything ready to go and teams just kept using them over and over again to get better deals. So that's why like, When you look at, you know, what the A's are going through without having that ballpark built advanced or not even having like renderings for a ballpark and then trying to piece together like a three year plan, not playing in the Coliseum, but also not playing in a to be announced ballpark. uh, You get in this uh, really uh, sketchy area where you don't know, like where you're going to be playing uh, if you're going to be getting the kind of TV money you thought you're getting originally in Oakland. If players are going to be cool with, you know, being in this weird nomadic year to year situation, like, you know, it's, it's a big mess. So that's why I think, you know, I've never really taken the threat of relocation seriously because the league has never, or the league has done everything possible. I think to avoid relocation in the most desperate markets and the white Sox are not a desperate market.
1: I'm going to give this 60 seconds before we move on to the other topics, folks, but for the Vegas situation, I think that's more on John Fisher and his incompetency. Yeah. He's like, a dummy. The the more I read about him and the more that very smart writers in San Francisco, write about him, like with Angelos now leaving. Yeah. John Fisher is by far the worst owner in major league baseball. And not only was he awful to Oakland A's fans, he might suck at business. Like he just might be, I'm rich because my parents owned Gap and Gap kicked off Banana Republic and kicked off Old Navy. Like that's why I'm rich. I'm rich. I'm a Nepo baby. John Fisher's pretty much a Nepo baby. Phil yeah. yeah. son. And uh, he's proven his worth right now because in two months, Bally's, the casino company, is tearing down Tropicana. They're tearing down that hotel and resort. So ready or not, John Fisher, uh, we're getting this land ready to develop, and you better be ready to start developing the land. So go find Mm -hmm. your money that you said that you had when you got approval from Nevada government to move forward at this project. And I mentioned this comment section. If John Fisher continues to fumble the bag, I wonder behind the scenes of Major League Baseball and the other 29 owners try to force him out. Like, you need to sell. You, you we can't have you we we you can't keep doing this we, you can't keep screwing <laughs> this up this is awful. we have standards so, we have standards yeah it's a country club and, and you're not meeting you're not meeting the and standards and they don't even have like,
2: standards really that's how bad it is <laughs> exactly
1: meanwhile i mentioned portland the portland baseball group that's trying to get a major league baseball team they bought a golf course in portland a 164 acre golf course and they're going to start developing renderings and plans and how they could develop that area for a new baseball stadium and entertainment district. So Portland technically is farther ahead than Nashville. Portland's got land where Nashville does not at the moment. So yeah, it seems to be, this could be the, the big talk of ma- with major league baseball the next five years, folks, new stadiums, relocations, franchise teams with the new CBA. And that will all lay it out on how new teams could be added. So if you, Love chaos. We could be getting it pretty soon and where teams actually play games. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. But after the break, let's speculate why Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, and Cody Bellinger are still free agents. And will old friends Tim Anderson and Yasmani Grandal find new homes before spring training next on the Sox Machine Podcast. We at Sox Machine have a special event planned on Wednesday night, March 27th, at the newly reopened Remova Theater. Along with our friends from the 108, we'll be hosting a live Sox Machine podcast to kick off the 2024 regular season and celebrate opening day. There'll be special guests, giveaways, and plenty of hashtag 108-ing as you'll get to mingle with other White Sox fans. This is a seated event where you have to be 18 years or older to attend. Tickets are just $22, which you can purchase at removachicago.com. That's all one word,
0: removachicago.com.
1: And Jim and I, we can't wait to see everyone at our opening day eve show at the Remova Theater.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply.
1: We'll go back to the Sox Machine podcast. All right, so after talking about the Corbin Burns trade and White Sox new stadium talk, We're going to talk about Major League Baseball here because, again, pitchers and catchers are going to report on February 14th in the Cactus League. I believe they report February 13th in the Grapefruit League in Florida. And then full squads show up five days later. So spring training is rapidly coming. And it kind of harkens back to the 2019 offseason, if you recall. That's when the White Sox failed to sign Manny Machado. And Bryce Harper ended up signing with Philadelphia into spring training. Both of those players were still, they were the biggest free agents of that class and they signed very late. Well, the biggest free agents have already signed, but you still have big free agents available in starting pitchers, Jordan Montgomery and the National League Young winner, Blake Snell. And then Cody Bellinger, one of the top position players in this free agency class still available. So Jim, it, it harkens this question in my mind, like, What's going Mm -hmm. on? Why haven't Jordan Montgomery, Blake Snell, and Cody Bellinger have signed? So let's start with Blake Snell, because it seems like word on the street is that his agent, of course, Scott Boris, and I think Scott Boris represents all three players, that Boris is seeking a nine-year contract for Blake Snell along the same lines that Garrett Cole signed with the New York Yankees. And I'm wondering at this stage of the off season, is anyone going to budge and meet Boris's asking price for Blake Snell, or do you not buy that rumor, Jim?
2: That seems like a lot for a pitcher who's already 30. Like I would think like nine years would be like, oh, you know, 27, 28, uh, hit the ground running as a prospect and then got called up and, you know. Never went back down to the minors and is hitting free agency in his prime. And sure, like Garrett Cole, like you know, that kind of deal. Uh, and Blake Snell, you know, because he you know led the league in walks last year because he's never thrown more than 180 innings and he's only done that twice. Like, he's either thrown 180 innings or he's thrown 130 innings. Like, he's not somebody who throws like 160 with regularity and qualifies for the ERA title. Uh, When he qualifies for the ERA title, he wins a Cy Young. (laughs) But uh, when he doesn't, like it's just he's missing basically a month plus the season. And if a pitcher's already 30, he's already had like the ups and downs with availability and his in-start stamina isn't necessarily the best to go back to like the Dylan Cease thing. I can understand why teams aren't just like super excited about like paying top dollar for him. Um, You know, trading for the Rays deal. Uh, the extension that they signed him to was like five years, 50 million or something along those lines, like uh, acquiring the remainder of that for three years of his prime. Sure. That, that makes all, you know, that makes plenty of sense because you can still have plenty of cash to spend around him and really fortify the rotation the way that the Padres did with like getting you Darvish as well. So that makes sense. But having Snell as like the centerpiece of a rotation and taking up all of the money versus being like a secondary salary where maybe you can spend the money to get a more reliable pitcher, whether start to start or, you know, over the course of a season, having a better feeling about getting 170 plus innings than Snell really gives you. I think that could be like a, a sticking point and just like how bad teams want somebody like him and You know, Scott Boris is very good at his job, but sometimes his approach backfires when the player isn't quite the right player for that heart of a line. And uh, while I'm reluctant to doubt him, uh, just because he tends to pull these deals out, like even if he has to wait to mid-March to do so, um, the weaknesses that Snell has, I think, are notable enough to say like, yeah, pump the brakes a little bit.
1: I could see a team maybe agreeing to like a five-year deal for Blake Snell, like five years, $150 million, $30 million per season. He'd still be one of the highest paid pitchers in Major League Baseball with that type of contract construction. But if Boris is asking for nine years, as you mentioned, Jim, he's stubborn enough to hold on and advise his client to wait. Somebody will eventually budge. It brings to mind, though, then Jordan Montgomery, because mm-hmm. as we saw this past season on how valuable Jordan Montgomery can be, he can't make the same case for Blake Snell to merit that length of a contract, but I really thought Jordan Montgomery would have been one of the first starting pitchers to be signed, that teams wouldn't mind signing him to a four- or five-year deal. Is there something that I'm missing? Because in my off plan, when I foolishly came up with an idea that maybe the White Sox can contend if they hold a $180 million payroll, which they're not going to come anywhere close to that type of payroll, the White Sox should sign someone like Jordan Montgomery to help lead the rotation. I still think that would be a good idea, but the White Sox are not going to explore that. So don't get your hopes up, folks. But I I am shocked that no other teams have signed Montgomery to this day.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, I think Boris having both players, like, is the easy explanation, especially, and, and I'm not sure, like, it would seem to be a conflict of interest if you're trying to use one player to set the market for the other, you know, and and you kind of get in this endless uh, standoff yeah. with yourself almost. Uh, if you're passing up like acceptable deals for your client, because you're holding out for a better one for another one. So I don't know if that's like something that's possible in those ranks, but like there are two opposite pitchers, like in terms of Snell's weaknesses, walks too many batters, uh, often gets hurt and misses starts. Like, Montgomery can't say the same. He doesn't really walk batters. He keeps the ball in the park pretty well. He's good for 150 plus innings, at least the last three years. Like he's he's been able to make 30 starts. He's been able to qualify for, for the ERA title. So like that's been points in his favor. So like you would think that if teams aren't, really excited about Snell, those teams would be interested or excited about Montgomery, you know, maybe going a year longer than they'd like to with the kind of standard inefficiency of free agent contracts because you're getting the skill set you want and you'll worry about the 2028 complications when you get to it, whatever the deal ends up being. So that confuses me a little bit aside from the Boris factor. The one thing with Montgomery is that, it really seems like he wants to go back to the Rangers or at least that was kind of the initial thought and the Rangers are tied up in the Bally Sports deal you know what's the future with that how much are they going to get for TV deals and so they really haven't been spending I think that's why the Mariners are in an interesting position of like Catching the Rangers as they regress a little bit and as they just try to get by on the money they spent last year uh, because they won their World Series, so they don't need to push as hard uh, to uh, enjoy the windfall from what they accomplished. So I can see the Rangers not being, you know, all that excited about them. And I can see, like, the Cardinals not maybe having, you know, they don't spend as freely as other teams to where, like, they knock Scott Boris's socks off with like a, a huge contract. Like they spend money. They just, you know, it's not like the, they don't spend the kind of free agent money where like going back to Garrett Cole at the Yankees, like a team saying like, Oh, I can't compete with that. Or in the case of like even Carlos Rodon, the deal he signed with the Yankees, like everybody's saying like, yeah, that's good for Rodon. Yankees can afford that. But like, I'm glad I didn't sign, you know, you can kind of see, uh, Uh, the Cardinals are on that tier below, even though they do spend. So I can see like that they're not going to go guns blazing for Montgomery, uh, especially since they just had him and uh, he didn't make a difference in terms of uh, what uh, they didn't accomplish during the first half of last season. So maybe they're thinking like, yeah, I don't want to, you know, get caught in a bidding war against myself when we know that he didn't reverse the course of our team already so if those are the two teams he kind of wants to play for that they're interested and they're just for one reason or another uh tempering their enthusiasm then i can see kind of getting this loop of do the angels get desperate you know because they're a team that can occasionally spend stupid money um and and and, you know get the deal they want but it is you know the the tv deal i think because that's the reason why the twins aren't spending even though they just are you know they won division had an attendance boost, seem well-positioned every other way to spend, and they aren't? Like, it, that could be a case where Montgomery's, the the kind of market that would be going nuts for Montgomery just is a little bit uh, held back by what, I guess, not being sure what their income's going to be next year.
1: And then finally, Cody Bellinger. If I'm a Chicago Cubs fan and I can sense the irritation, especially in social media, like, why haven't the Cubs signed Cody Bellinger? Like, that just seems... Bizarre to me. Like I understand that the Cubs are like, we like Picro Armstrong. He's going to be our center fielder. That's fine. You could still use Cody Bellinger. Like I, Bellinger is another one that I'm really surprised. Like the Yankees don't make sense now because they got Juan Soto and that mm-hmm. outfield is, is pretty packed. Now there's a part of me that just, I wish that Jerry would just be wake up and be like, you know what, Scott 27 million for one year of Cody Bellinger. Would Bellinger play one season with the Chicago White Sox and probably get traded in July? Like, it's not even a full season, like half a season. So really, you'd just be on the hook for like $13.5 million to give White Sox fans false hope that they could be anything in 2024. Maybe they could. Maybe everyone breaks out. Makata Jimenez... Vaughn, they all break out along with Luis Robert and then Bellinger comes in and then all of a sudden they, they have a lineup. They're scoring runs like this is pie in the sky type of thinking. But there's a part of me that's like, if nobody wants Cody Bellinger, why Mm -hmm. not the White Sox? But we know why the White Sox won't, but I'm still confused on like why the Cubs haven't gotten a deal done or anyone for that matter.
2: Yeah, the outfield market's been pretty dismal. I guess Matt Chapman is another one in the market as well. Like yeah, kind of that's being, a good point. Being the Cody Bellinger among infielders uh, and, and not finding a home yet, like another guy who, whose defense helps make up for the inconsistencies in his offense, like offers a lot offensively when everything's going right. When things aren't quite clicking, he plays defense well enough to help out there. And whether the you know, if it's inconsistency, health, what have you, uh, that sometimes keeps, uh, you know, a player in a rut for a month. So, yeah, it's it's a case where, like, you know, Boris being Boris, like this is the reason why, like, fans don't like him and teams don't like him and just, like, why he's, he's a good nemesis for, I think, a lot of parties in baseball is because, like, he just, he does hold out. And while, you know, labor-minded baseball fans always want to prioritize yeah these are free agents they have agency to decide where they go and wait as long as they can to get top dollar it does suppress the excitement of like getting your new toy and just imagining all the ways your lineup can go and kind of drawing up uh strategies against lefties and righties and the guy like bellinger where do we play him center left right first base like how do we maximize a skill set and then like if he comes back it's like it's already spring training so you know that kind of excitement of Well, normally would have been like a winter meeting signing. uh, It does make the winter a little less special. So that's, yeah, I think the problem with like one agent cornering the market the way that Boris has. But yeah, yeah, it's thinking about Bellinger and the White Sox. Like Chris gets the strategy of defense. Like what if defense, but offense (laughs) like. (laughs) Yeah, it just it's fun
1: to pretend it is fun to pretend. And then finally old friends, Tim Anderson and Yasmani Grandal, still free agents. There's a part of me that's not surprised that they're still free agents, Jim, even though there were those early rumors back in November, mid-November, when there was speculation that the Angels could pursue Tim Anderson and have Tim Anderson be their second baseman, especially after hiring manager Rod Washington and I always felt like that could be a good pairing at some point to help Anderson's career since Wash has done a terrific job everywhere that he's gone in helping middle infielders develop. Of course, his big success story is Marcus Simeon when Wash was in Oakland. That obviously hasn't come to fruition. And I'm wondering here, again, spring training's in a couple weeks, Jim. Are Tim Anderson and Yasmani Grandal still going to be unemployed? Do you think they're going to find homes in the next two weeks?
2: I think Anderson could Elvis Andrew signed a deal with the White Sox play second base right as spring training was starting. And I think Anderson has a similar case, like any team that could use upside, whether as like the projected worst infielder on the team, like if a team only needs a second baseman and they don't have anybody that's currently replacement level, Like, that would be a team like, yeah, sign Tim Anderson. Uh, Because if he's great, like, if he's all-star level again, or at least what all-star level was before, like, all the infielders were good and it became a lot harder to crack a top 10 list, like, that's all of a sudden huge upside for, like, top of the order or bottom of the order if he's a guy turning it over. And, you know, if you're a team that could use upside just in order to have Potential players move at the deadline. That's another case where, yeah, um, may as well sign him because he's not going to cost much, uh, especially the you know the way he played last year. Um, I, I wrote about this a little bit, just saying like it seems like the teams that wanted something specific from the position, like with the White Sox getting Paul DeYoung, Nikki Lopez to solidify the middle infield and and put glove-first guys behind a pitching staff that needs all the defensive help it can get. Like Anderson's not that kind of guy. Like, if you want offense, like especially the way Anderson played last year, he's a hard guy to bet on as well. That's what, that's why I really think it put him in a really tough position uh, for teams to that are acquiring, saying like, what's the what's the most likely thing we're going to get out of him? Or if all else fails, what does he provide? And last year, Tim Anderson's game failed completely. Like, I think the only thing he did well was steal bases, but he didn't get right. on base enough to steal bases so he only stole like 12 or 13 so like you can't count on that he didn't defend well didn't get on base just seemed kind of out of it um you yeah, know the whole team was out of it but just when it came to he wasn't his usual self on the field in the dugout in the clubhouse etc so like what is this guy now so i can see um just this being a long winter for him in terms of recognizing his new value and then just trying to figure out the best place where he can rehabilitate his value in a hurry. So he might be picky a little bit to make sure that he doesn't get blocked or you know kind of walled off on a team and being like a bench guy, because I think he really does need to start in order to try to recapture what he had. Uh, But I can see teams that want certainty in one aspect just looking at anderson and saying i'm not sure what that certainty is because even if he's good he may not stay healthy that's the other thing working against him so it's tough because it's uh, you know as fun as he is when everything's going right you hate to see somebody just kind of lose all his mojo in one year so i'm hoping that he finds a deal that works for him just give him the playing time that he needs to to put it all together grandal i think like if he retired, I imagine he'd be fine. Yeah. Like, you know, he's accomplished plenty. He, you know, he's made generational money. Uh, you can call it a good career. Um, I don't know if he wants to be anybody's backup. I don't know if a team would want him as a backup. Another case of like, what does he do well? Uh, when you say like the way the White Sox, White, White Sox pitching staff collapsed when he was there, he didn't really help. I'm not sure if he's got like a steward, a pitching staff. If he's going to shepherd other young catchers, uh, like I don't know if he's going to offer that, so he might not be like a Martín Maldonado, make everybody better around you, including former uh, fellow catchers. So he just might be content to be like, yeah, it's a career. He could be, yeah. I mean, I, I you get so used to starting, like just you might not be that kind of guy who has to play a second banana and be the helper. I could see it. I could see
1: Grandal retiring. Tim Anderson, we'll see, but. Yeah, it was not that long ago that we raved that both of these players could be Dark Horse MVP candidates for the White Sox, and here we are in February 1st, 2024, as we record this podcast episode, and there's still free agents, but they're not alone. There's still many free agents out there, even the big-name free agents still don't know where they will be reporting to for spring training in a couple of weeks, But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. But before we sign off, we kind of buried the lead here for Sox Machine. We have some major news, major site news that we're going to be announcing on Monday, February 5th. And we're not trying to deliberately be coy. Is that the right phrase here, Jim? Like, Mm -hmm. we'll be making this announcement on Monday. But with this particular announcement, again, we'll be live streaming. The live stream will be at 12 p.m. Central time on Monday. And we'll have that news also on Monday on socksmachine.com. But we're very excited for this big news that we're going to be announcing on Monday.
2: Yes, it's come together very quickly. So Monday is, I think, literally the soonest we could possibly do it. Like. Uh, the, the, the emails, uh, the, the Google workspace is smoking right now with everything we have to send back and forth, uh, to get this going, but yeah, it is, I would consider it a transformational change for Socks Machine. And with that, you know, we have not, uh, you know, since we launched on Patreon as a Patreon supported site, uh, in 2018, uh, we have not changed the pricing tiers because, we didn't have a reason to charge more aside from like adjusting for inflation, you know, maybe making a little bit more money, that sort of thing. But we didn't wanna to touch the pricing tiers. We just wanted to continue uh, growing the community uh, because we figured that was more important. And if we charge more, we want to be like a specific reason, like here's why we need more money. You're gonna see your value from this. And that moment has arrived. So we are very excited about it. It does come with like a slight trepidation just because we will be changing or revising the Patreon pricing structure quite a bit in order to uh, accommodate this. Uh, but we really feel like it's worth it. Really excited about it. Can't wait for Monday because that'll mean like all our work is done, first of all, but also because like, you know, it's, it's huge news uh, and really can't wait to get started on a new era of socks Machine.
1: And you guessed it. We're moving to the south. I'm kidding. Yes, Uh, (laughs) I'm kidding. But yes, Monday, 12 p.m. Central Time will be streaming live on our YouTube channel, on Twitch, on Twitter and socksmachine.com. So good time to subscribe
2: to the YouTube channel because you'll get notified when we're going live uh, in case you happen to forget. Uh, you're know, busy with your work day and realize like, Oh, I forgot about the socks machine live announcement. You'll get notifications if you're subscribed when we're about to go live.
1: Yes. So again, that'll be our next episode from us because we got a lot of work to do from here and there. We also got to do a lot of curling Yes. on Saturday. Can't wait to see, see a lot of you guys at windy city curling. Uh, don't ask what the big announcement is going to be. Uh, at the curling event. We're going to, We're going to be not telling you, and you're going to be extra angry at us and throwing a 40-pound stone on the ice at me. Uh, (laughs) It's not going to be great, but yeah, I can't wait to see everyone at curling, and can't wait to talk to you guys on Monday, with the exception if Dylan Cease, of course, gets traded over the weekend. You will obviously hear from us on Sox Machine. That's the last thing we need right now. That really is the (laughs) last thing that we need right now. Uh, If you are listening, Chris Getz. But well, that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts such as Spotify and Apple Music. As Jim mentioned, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Machine. For the podcast listeners that listen to the show through Google Podcasts, please note in March, Google will be migrating you from Google Podcasts over to YouTube. To listen to the podcast, which we do upload our podcast episodes into our YouTube channel. So please be aware of that change that's coming in a month. And you can follow us on social media. We're on all the platforms at the Sox Machine. You can follow me there as well at Sox Machine underscore Josh. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching.